From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. I'm Kyle Stokes, in for Larry Mantle. Today, some L.A. County businesses can begin serving customers again, and parks, trails, and in Orange County, beaches will reopen in a limited capacity. But will people show up? First, though, just ask a parent working from home or any parent stuck with a child care pinch right now. It is really hard to imagine reopening the economy without reopening school campuses. But imagine enforcing social distancing in a kindergarten classroom. One reason why it's still not clear whether schools will reopen campuses even by this fall. This hour, we want to hear from you. Are you ready for schools to reopen? And what needs to happen to make that safe? Air Talk, right up after the news. Good morning. Coming to you live from the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Kyle Stokes. Larry Mantle taking a well-deserved Friday for himself. He will be back with us on Monday. You will hear from him, though. Larry's already prepped an hour of Film Week with our critics. That comes your way at 11 o'clock. And later this hour, we're going to walk through which restrictions from the coronavirus pandemic are lifting this weekend. Maybe you need to get your mom some flowers for Mother's Day. That is coming up. But first, we turn to the public schools. Earlier this week, Los Angeles Unified School Superintendent Austin Butner said he still doesn't know whether it'll be safe to reopen school buildings for the start of the fall semester. And he told me that even if they do, schools probably won't run in the same way. We might have to look at some combination that is a hybrid where students are in school a couple days a week and continuing to pursue their studies online a couple days a week because it's, it's not so simple as moving the desks apart because we don't have the budget. We can't exactly double our workforce overnight. And I don't think the state's going to give us double the budget to do so. Just so many unanswered questions about how all of this is going to work. So we want to talk it through with you, what we know and what we don't know. Parents, teachers, students, support staffers in schools, school nurses. Do you think that it's a good idea for us to start taking steps to reopen school campuses right now. And if you don't, what kinds of changes do you think that your school should be making that that would make you feel safer before schools do reopen their campuses? I want to hear your thoughts at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Take a break from distance learning teachers and students and give us a call or head to the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. And it's not just Los Angeles unified in this bind, but districts across the region facing this challenge. L.A. County's districts serve more than one million students, all of them with parents and caretakers who need clarity about what's happening in schools for their own sakes, for their own sanity, and for their jobs, perhaps. And overseeing all of these schools in L.A. County is the county's superintendent of schools, Deborah Duardo. Dr. Duardo, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you making the time. So your office has convened a task force of 23 different school leaders that are going to study reopening. I want to start with an overview of the challenge that it is that they're studying. What are the obstacles that you're talking about on this task force to reopening school campuses? Well, there are many obstacles. Um, We want to make sure that our number one priority is the health and safety of our students and our employees. So 
One is making sure that we have clear guidelines on what the precautionary measures are that we're going to need to take when we have students returning to school. We want to make sure that we have adequate resources to meet those guidelines. For example, we want to make sure that we have the um, personal protection equipment, so the masks and gloves, that we have adequate funding for disinfectants and cleaning supplies, uh, and really in, a, in order for us to implement the physical distancing that we know is going to be required. So besides the resources, we're also looking at various models because we know for the physical distancing, we're going to have to have a much smaller percentage of our students physically present at school at any given time. So learning, looking at some blended learning where we may have some students still doing part of their time, uh, their instruction remotely, while others are on campus looking at year-round schedules or alternative schedules, staggering start times, hybrid of these types of things, uh, and looking at um, um, ensuring how we're going to be able to implement those di those differences. Yeah, the, so we also need to look at many of these things have to be negotiated by with our union partners. So there's there's some challenges. And lastly, I just you know I like to say that we're looking at a historic state budget def budget deficit. So uh, this is coming at a time when we know we're going to have significant cuts to our budget. Yeah, I I think that there we, and we should talk about those budget issues. I, but put a pin in that I, and return to the staggered schedules for a moment. And I just want to underline what you just said uh, about the idea about exploring these blended learning models. I, I, maybe this is a good opportunity to level with parents here that if and when, whenever schools reopen, uh, th that, I mean, are, is what you're saying that it's unlikely that we're likely to go back to school the way it, it was, even if it takes a while for schools to reopen, that whatever it is, staggered schedules, blended learning, however you want to call it, AM, PM shifts, it's it's not going to look like what it looked like before. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to look very different because we need to ensure that our children and our employees are safe when they come back. With us is also UCLA epidemiologist Karen Michaels. She's the chair and professor of the Department of Epidemiology at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. And Dr. Michaels, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, I, I think that this would be a good opportunity for those of you who have questions about reopening schools to speak not only to uh, Dr. Duardo about what school officials are thinking, but also to uh, Professor Michaels, uh, who's a public health expert, about the wisdom of, of moving into reopening public schools. So if you have questions or comments about the idea of reopening public schools at this stage, give us a call, 866-893-KPCC. That's 866 Three five seven two two. Go to the AirTalk page and leave a comment. But I'll start, Professor Michaels. I, I, I'm wondering if you can talk through what we know about how this disease affects children, because I feel like very early on in the crisis, the feeling was children simply didn't get COVID nineteen. But there's been a lot of new research that's that I think has at least caused me to revisit that notion. So let's fact check how, at how big of a risk are children to get COVID nineteen and to spread COVID-19? Yes, that's a really good question. And as you rightly pointed out, in the beginning, there was some thought that maybe children are less affected, less 
infectious, but the latest data and the latest research has supported a, a slightly different picture. It seems like children are affected by COVID-19 to the same degree as adults, and they can infect other people also at the same degree. So that doesn't seem to be much of a difference uh, with this age spectrum. There was a, a study of Chinese cases I was reading about that said children are not as susceptible to infection. This is in the New York Times that wrote about this. It said only a third, uh, children are only about as a third as susceptible as an adult. But when they're in school, they become disease vectors. They have three times more contacts with other people, which cancels out whatever advantage that they might have had with COVID-19. I mean, does that sound does that sound right? And maybe we can talk about that multiplier effect of being around so many different people. Right. I mean, I think the challenge in schools is not only the classroom itself, which can be prepared, as we just heard, you know, with with seats apart and, and face masks. But I think the breaks are a problem. You know, they haven't seen their friends in a long time. They want to gather in groups. They want to exchange news. They want to talk to each other. So I think it's also we have to be alert that it's also the time in between the lessons that may be a challenge to keep these children uh, orderly apart. And these are children. You know, it's a little bit harder for them to understand how important it is to always keep the social distancing. Right. Uh, again, I want to hear from parents and students who are who are thinking about what it's going to be like to go back to school whenever that happens. You know, Austin Butner, the superintendent of LAUSD, said it might not even happen in the fall. But uh, if you are thinking about what it's going to take to go back to school, give us a call and share your thoughts or maybe your questions for our experts who are here with us at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. Professor Mike, Michael's, as an epidemiologist, how do you think about the the challenge of reopening schools? I mean, we were talking earlier with with Dr. Duardo about the the obstacles, you know, logistically that schools face. What do you see as the biggest obstacles? So um, I think what we should do is we should look at the European countries and uh, you know, we have been about uh, three, four weeks behind in the COVID-19 epidemic in the United States behind Europe. So in Europe, several countries have opened schools this week. Several other European countries are opening schools next week in exactly that same hybrid fashion that we've just heard about. You know, they, they come in one week and then they are at home one week and they come in one week. And so I think we need to learn from the European uh, model whether it's going to work for them. And that might actually guide what we are going to do in the United States. Norma in Lakewood on the AirTalk page writes, I'm worried for this generation. My son, already floundering in person, is completely adrift with online classes. My niece, a fantastic student, is also struggling. My husband doesn't see the point of paying so much for online college. He's trying to get my college son to drop out. Will colleges lower the prices if everything stays online? I think that underscores that while we're talking about safety and about uh about the logistical concerns that we also have to keep an eye on how much students are learning during this crisis. Which brings me to our next guest, who is Paul Von Hippel, an associate professor of public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Von Hippel, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. So you study educational inequality, and our governor has said that he's concerned about students coming back to school behind. And as our commenter just mentioned, that there's concern about students not being able to keep up with their coursework. Do you think that that everyone has a right to be concerned about the idea of learning loss? Yeah, it's a legitimate concern. California is actually doing a better job than uh, than some other states in making learning available online, but it's still unlikely that most students are going to learn nearly as much through the online instruction that's being provided than they would if schools were still open. So there's uh, there are projections that if students essentially go sideways from when schools closed to uh, uh, to when schools open reopen, they'll be months behind where they would have been otherwise, and that needs to be made up somehow, somehow especially for the kinds of students who are at risk anyway. Why is it that distance learning is less accessible for students? Well, um, I mean, the the research on this has trouble keeping up with the technology. We don't have a lot of evidence on the efficacy of technologies, even like wildly popular ones like Khan Academy. Um, and none of these were ever intended to be a substitute for school. They were all intended to be a supplement to it. Um, so it's it's difficult to know and uh, uh, exactly how effective these 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 online um, modalities are going to be. Uh, but the work that we have in higher education, for example, is that students find them less engaging. Uh, one of your listeners said that her son was adrift, and I think that's fairly fairly common, that, that students who are uh, already high performers, highly engaged, have engaged parents, may do all right through this period, but students who are uh, at risk, we know from randomized experiments done in universities, are more likely to drop out and uh, less likely to persist. Yeah, so, uh, there's a big problem. And then in, in, in addition, um, you know, the whole thing is improvised. If, you, if we were told a year in advance that we had to get an online learning plan in place, uh, we'd probably be doing better now. But we had to throw it together in a couple of weeks and therefore we can't expect the same kind of results that we could have gotten under optimal circumstances. Right. It sort of feels like everyone was thrown into an ocean and asked to build a boat without any you know, tools and only some people had life jackets. You know, it was it was completely on the fly, completely ad hoc. That's a marvelous analogy. Yeah. I, I, Dr. Duardo, I'm, I'm wondering if you can, you know, give your thoughts about learning loss here. I, I, I mean, there has been discussion about just how bad this problem is going to be and what schools are, are going to do about it. You, you have convened a task force of 23 different school district leaders. You've already begun meeting about this. Are you talking about learning loss? Are you discussing what this issue uh, is, is, you know, what, what issue that uh, teachers and students are going to return to when they return to campuses? Yes, we are having those discussions, and and I think it's important to uh, bring up the fact that this pandemic disproportionately affects our marginalized communities, um, our students uh, and families that uh, come from low-income households, our English language learners, our students with disabilities, our first-generation college students. Uh, We know that there's a huge digital divide. Uh, Many of our students, part of the challenge for us with the online instruction is that so many students didn't have access to the devices that they needed to do the distance learning or access to the internet or high-speed access. So we are very concerned about um, widening the opportunity gap that already exists 
And some of the things that we're looking at is how do we ensure that we uh, keep equity in mind as we're thinking about the return of schools or our online instruction that currently exists? How are we making sure that the students that need the um, additional support are, are first in line to get that to ensure that we're not widening um, the gap that already exists uh, between our students. So we are, we are very concerned. And as I said, a big part of it is the fact that so many students don't have access to the equipment that they need to connect. Uh, so it is a big concern. Yeah. I, I believe in Los Angeles Unified, it's something like a third of students don't have access to the internet and a PC at home, according to, and that was some old census data. Obviously, it might have changed as a result of the enormous efforts that have been undertaken by school districts and by the state to uh, distribute technology, uh, LAUSD distributing laptops and hotspots. But, uh, you know, I was on the phone th- earlier this week with a mom who did not have, uh, who was, you know, somehow missed by by the LAUSD laptop program. We'll return with this conversation about reopening schools in just a minute, but want to hear from you, 866-893-KPCC, especially from parents, students, teachers. What are your thoughts about reopening schools and whether or not it can be done safely? If you don't think it can at this point, what needs to be done to ensure it can happen? Give us a call, 866-893-KPCC, the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Back with more of this conversation in one minute. Air Talk coming to you live from the Moan Broadcast Center. I'm Kyle Stokes in for Larry Mantle. And because, like most of the reporters here at KPCC, I've been at home reporting from my kitchen for the last two months. This is my first time in the Moan Broadcast Center at my own employer's office in uh, two months now, uh, nearly two months at this point. But I just wanted to give a shout out to all of the folks who are manning the fort here, particularly Yolanda Ware, who's our facilities manager and keeping the whole thing clean. Made sure I had two pairs of gloves when I walked in the door. So I appreciate you, Yolanda, and all of the staff here at KPCC that have been uh, maintaining things. We are talking about reopening schools today and about what needs to be done to make sure that reopening schools can be done safely. And with me, is the Los Angeles County Superintendent of Schools, Deborah Duardo, who oversees, whose office is the primary regulator for the districts of L.A. County that serve more than a million students. Dr. Duardo, um, I think we should ask about the governor's idea of reopening schools early, in fact. And and he, you know, sort of floated this as a maybe a more or less a trial balloon earlier this week uh, about reopening schools um, as a means of, of curtailing what we were talking about over the break, which is this possibility that students are going to fall behind while in the midst of distance learning. Um, but I, I'm wondering, there's been some pushback to that idea, people wondering how it would work to reopen schools physically as early as July. Are any of the districts that you're working with in a position to do that? No. Uh, I think many of us were surprised by the governor um, suggesting that. Uh, One, as I said, we want to make sure when children do come back that we have um, the tools that we need to keep them safe. Um, Some of the things that we're talking about that we need are on back order, such as masks, Uh, thermometers, um, having everything that we need in order to make sure that students are safe. Also, changing the school calendars would require negotiations with our union partners 
um, some of those challenges, uh, even the fact that teachers haven't had the opportunity to have a break, I want to remind everyone that uh, school is still in session, even right. though children are not physically in the in our schools. Teachers are teaching. We're giving out meals every single day to students and families. Some some districts are providing childcare for first responders and health providers. So a lot of work is going on right now. It would be difficult to close down the current school year and start up uh, next month. It's it's just too soon. It's uh, it, it's just too soon, and and it's interesting to hear that uh, that was sort of you're not the first person to say that they were surprised by the governor floating that idea. Um, but you know, as we've said before on the show, this is sort of how has been his mo. It's been to try and discuss ideas publicly, um, but but obviously the logistical questions are huge here, including as as was mentioned, uh, masks. And I want to bring that up with with uh, epidemiologist Karen Michaels from the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, Professor Michaels. If if schools are not able to reopen with masks, if you can't resolve the issue of of having these masks on back order or not having sufficient supply, would that be a reason to 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 not reopen schools? Like, how big of a deal do you think that is? That's a really good question. Also, in the context of Europe, where in some countries the students actually do not wear masks which I think is actually a mistake. So I think having masks is very, very important. Um, so I think uh, rather safe than sorry. Also under the perspective that we have so many infected people who are asymptomatic. So, you know, you may feel healthy, but you are infected, and that means you can infect others. And that is the case among some of the children as well. So they may be less careful because, of course, they have no idea that they are infected. So I think having masks uh, has made a big, big difference at the School of Public Health. We've actually done some modeling how big an effect the masks have, and they have a tremendous effect on stopping the spread of the virus. Interesting. I think it's essential to having masks. Interesting. I saw a note in the L.A. Times from the uh, from the the superintendent of the Palos Verdes uh, Peninsula School District, who was mentioning that if we had to put every a mask on every one of our providers every day, that's quickly, you know, adds up to something like 50,000 masks per day. I, I believe I might be misstating the number, but it was thousands and thousands of masks that, that they would have to go through. Another question for you, Dr. Michaels, came to us uh, from David, an off-air commenter, who wondered about herd immunity among children and whether it's possible to cultivate that. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming smallpox, excuse me, uh, uh, chicken pox parties for COVID are not something that you would advise uh, seeding at this point. So that's another interesting question, because at this point, we don't know whether we can even generate herd immunity. As we are learning, the viral load determines whether you may or may not become immune, even though the research is still in the very early steps on that. This is one of the key questions. Do people become immune after they have been infected? And the way it looks uh, right now is that maybe the people who were asymptomatic uh, but infected may not be immune or may be less likely to be immune. So this goes counter to our counting on herd immunity. And don't let's not forget, for herd immunity, 70% of the population would have had to be infected. Right. And, you know, that's a very high price to pay. I don't think that's a goal we can have 
And that's not something we can very likely rely on. Michelle and La Cunata to our earlier point about masks. I have a small children and my son is on the autism spectrum. It's difficult for kids with cognitive abilities to understand why they have to wear a mask. For these young kids, they will be unknowingly spreading germs. Let's go to Carolyn in Claremont. Carolyn, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Um, So I'm a seventh grade history teacher, a new teacher uh, in L.A. County, but in the Claremont School District. And one of the things that really concerns me that no one really seems to talk about is that even though my seventh graders are absolutely incredible and very responsible with the size of our buildings and the size of classrooms that we have currently, there's just not a way for our kids to even maintain social distancing And we know that unless they're wearing those N95 gas uh, masks and all the personal protective equipment, other masks are relatively effective, but nothing like like what N95 masks are. And so they have to be used in conjunction with social distancing. And that's just not possible with the size of the classrooms that we have and the number of classes that we have. We would need to double or triple, I think, the, the number of teachers that we have and the number of building units that we have in order to give our kids adequate space to right. social distance. Because otherwise they would just be standing on top of each other and the risk of transmission, you know, who knows how effective these masks are. I uh, Thank you, Carolyn, for your call. Uh, I think that's that's one I'd like to... to, to uh, shift over to Dr. Duardo and ask about that, because when I think of class sizes, I think of of a, of a financial constraint. You mentioned before the budget issues the state is having. having uh, one of the districts you oversee, LAUSD, just issued a joint statement with, uh, the, uh, with the San Diego Unified School District saying that it is not going to be possible to reopen schools safely if um, the kind of state budget problems that the state is looking at could just get passed on to schools. Uh, you're also the financial regulator for for these districts. What are you tell- advising districts on how to negotiate these challenges of reopening safely, but also having to balance their budget as the law requires? Yeah, well, definitely some some challenges. I just want to go back and address the caller's concern, the teacher's concern about the ability to physically distance given the um, constraints on size of classrooms and et cetera. That's why we're talking about only having a small number of students pre- students present at any particular time. So a classroom that may have 30 students would more likely have 10 students. So we'd have to stagger schedules. We'd have to have some students physically present on certain days while others continue to receive their instruction remotely. We're also looking at partnerships with possibly libraries and parks so that some students can receive their uh, remote learning in a non-traditional school setting so that their parents can go to work while they're getting their remote online instruction. So we're definitely going to have to make sure that in order to implement the physical distancing that we have less students physically present at any one time. Um, in terms of the budget and the challenges with that, we have, you know, definite concerns. You know, we're hoping that the federal government, as they're looking to bail out, you know, airlines and others, will make education a priority. We certainly cannot implement all of the things that we need to do without the resources to do it safely. So, absolutely, we are talking about 
um, what we need to do, uh, what resources we need, how we can have school start in a very different way, uh, ensuring that we have less children physically present. And then you also have to think about our students that have pre-existing conditions, students that are medically fragile, as well as our employees that um, are over 60 years old or have pre-existing conditions as well. Right. Dr. Deborah Duardo is the uh, L.A. County Superintendent of Schools. And just to address the idea of, well, like, is it going to work? How is school going to work when uh, when we have to move to these staggered schedules? I'd like to turn back to the professor of public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, Paul Von Hippel. And, Paul, you've, you've studied the uh, the, the uh, something that maybe, I guess, could be analogous to what we're about to go into or about as – I mean, maybe check me on that <laughs> – about as close to analogous as we can get, but the idea of whether year-round schooling is effective. Um, maybe we should start with my premise that it's an, it's an analogy to what we're about to go through right now. Is it a fair comparison to, to, to remember California's experience with year-round schools as, as a, maybe an idea of how this is going to go? Well, um, first, it's important to remember what year-round schools are. The, the name is a little misleading because it gives the impression that maybe year-round schools have more instruction time. Right. Uh, most year-round schools do not. It's the usual 180 days of instruction just, just redistributed. And often it's combined with some kind of staggered schedule. The, California right. used a lot of year-round calendars back in the 90s and 2000s. As many as uh, uh, 17% of elementary schools used staggered calendars at one time. And uh, the purpose at that time was to reduce crowding because of class size reduction and trouble building new school buildings. Um, the purpose would be to reduce crowding now, but it would have to reduce it a lot more. It turns it what was interesting about the research you did about about the year round calendar is that having students bouncing in and out of schools made it a lot more difficult for uh, mothers, particularly to work outside the home. It made teachers burn out. Is that maybe a bad sign for how well staggered schedules are going to work for students to say nothing of the fact that academically the the results that you found were not as, you know, as as uh, it didn't live up to the sheen that that advocates had hoped for? Well, it's funny what you say. I mean, um, uh, there there were some folks who were hoping for great things from year round and staggered schedules and those uh, benefits didn't materialize. But there also wasn't a whole lot of choice at the time. I mean, there weren't enough classrooms to accommodate all the new teachers who had to be hired for class size reduction. So there needed to be some way to get more more uh, um, teachers and students in and out of the building. And staggered schedules were, uh, were were one of the ways to do that. The other way was um, was portable classrooms. So there's there's some great effects on the effects of staggered school schedules. And um, as you say, it was a little disappointing. But I'm not sure how relevant it all is because it was all done in a context where the alternative people were thinking about was having school students in school full-time and on a traditional schedule. Um, when that was the alternative, staggered and half-day schedules didn't look so great. But if the alternative is keeping kids home full-time, then uh, the, the staggered and half-day schedules have nothing but upside. I mean, it'll, they'll, they'll make it easier for parents to work outside the home, and they'll allow kids to learn more than they would learn probably uh, if we continued in the current mode. Yeah. 
interesting that it's sort of it, it's all relative now that in the before times, something that didn't look that great. I'm sure there are some parents who would like to get their kids out of the house at this stage um, in to say nothing of the potential benefits of being in a physical school campus. Uh, Eric in Los Feliz asks, uh, given that they have more testing available, testing more available now, could that be part of the solution? Uh, maybe uh, Professor Michaels can weigh in on this epidemiologist at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Could kids be tested frequently in schools? Is that something, uh, uh, Professor Michaels, that is being con- that should be considered? Well, theoretically, that would be a great idea. The question is, do we have enough test kits? Because now we're talking about a lot of children. And the question is, you know, are we going to just test random samples? Are we going to test all children and, of course, the teachers as well and the staff in the school? So I think it really comes down to the numbers. Uh, all testing is good. All testing helps. And even if it's random samples, uh, but it's never an assurance and never a guarantee. Professor uh, Karen Michaels, an epidemiologist at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, will join us in our next segment, hopefully, if that's all right with you, uh, Professor Michaels, to talk about L.A. County reopening. That will be right after a short break here on AirTalk. But I'd like to pass along my thanks as well to Deborah Duardo, the superintendent of L.A. County Schools, the L.A. County Office of Education. Dr. Duardo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And Paul Von Hippel, an associate professor of public affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor Von Hippel, really appreciate you taking time to talk again. It was great to have the opportunity. The uh, discussion of reopening schools and the mammoth task ahead as schools tick through a list of a million unanswered questions. We'll be right back after a short break to talk about the baby steps L.A. County and Orange County are taking to reopen businesses coming up this weekend. Back after a short break on AirTalk. This is the Los Angeles flower market this morning as vendors are getting ready for flower shops to reopen today. That's our next subject here on AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC. Florists are one type of L.A. County business that can reopen in a limited capacity today. We're going to walk through exactly what is reopening in a moment. But first, let's turn to KPCC reporter Emily Guerin, who is at the Flower Mart this morning, she's been covering how the pandemic is affecting small businesses. Good morning, Emily. Hi, Kyle. What was it like at the Flower Mart this morning? It was very busy. I was, to be clear, I wasn't inside the sort of famous flower market that everyone thinks of. I was on some of the side streets in and around the flower market. So there were a lot of, you know, buckets on the streets full of sunflowers and pallets full of roses and I talked to a man who was there with his mother. They sell flowers on the street, and so they were stocking up. I also talked to a woman who runs a sort of floral design salon in the arts district, and she's been doing a lot of bouquet deliveries the past few weeks because her store's been closed, and she was gearing up to deliver even more bouquets this weekend for Mother's Day. So a lot of activity. One of the wholesalers I talked to said that it felt like a typical Friday before Mother's Day. Really? Were there enough, were there customers in addition to the activity of the business owners there too? Oh, yeah. There were a lot of people. And I went inside uh, the one of the sort of flower malls where there are a lot of sort of small stands and vendors. And I have to say it was it was crowded. I mean, I there were a lot of people. It was not really possible to stay six feet apart from each other. I didn't 
talk to anyone inside because I didn't really want to stay in there. I talked to people on the street. But yeah, I mean, there were there were there were quite a few people there buying flowers. Yeah. This sort of raises the question for me about whether you are one of those people who's going to head out to a place like a flower uh, outdoor market, like where Emily Guerin is calling us from this morning. Uh, If you're going to head out on for some outdoor recreation, Uh, we've got golf courses, many trails, most trails in L.A. County, uh, on L.A. County property anyway, that are reopening. We want to hear from you. Call us 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Head to the AirTalk page at kpcc.org slash AirTalk. Let us know, are you going to be out there this weekend? Are you going to start ordering from these businesses heading out to do some outdoor recreating? Do you feel that it's going to be safe in these places? We're talking a little bit later on in this segment with a a reporter in Orange County where they have uh, struck a deal to reopen the beaches. Are you maybe going to head to a beach this, this, this weekend for some recreation, albeit in a limited form? Let us know, 866-888-5722 or the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Emily, I'm, I'm curious to know, do you think, do you get the sense that small businesses, which is what you've been covering during this pandemic, that they want to be open. I I mean, I don't want to take that as a given because the potential is that maybe they would reopen, customers don't show up, and then they end up operating at a loss. I feel like a lot of small business owners I've talked to that have not yet received any kind of government assistance feel like they have no choice but to be open. And so they're staying open because they know that their employees depend on them. They have rent to pay. They know that the commercial eviction moratoriums are just that, moratoriums, and they could get evicted later if they cannot pay their rent. So a lot of small businesses are just trying to do what they can to be able to kind of cover their basic expenses, given that many of them were not able to access the Paycheck Protection Program or other loan programs. One last thing, Emily, you mentioned that it was crowded, that it was difficult to maintain physical distance. Can you talk about this from a public health perspective? I mean, there are so many restrictions that are that have been placed on how businesses have reopened. Did you see, you know, the restrictions of face coverings and and social distance, uh, you know, being adhered to? So there were a lot of signs up asking people to wear masks and asking people to maintain social distancing and, you know, come into stalls one person at a time. It was I mean, I would say probably more than 90 percent of the people I saw were wearing masks. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was more that it was it it was just crowded and it was there was not policing that I saw of the crowds and trying to keep people in single file lines, you know, the way we see outside grocery stores now. Um, the, I did see uh, LAPD officers in the area, but I didn't see them speaking to anyone, although one of the vendors I talked to said that before today they had been really policing the area and telling people, no, you can't sell flowers on the sidewalk. You can only sell flowers inside. So it seems like the police at least were sort of passively letting more of the commerce kind of overflow out onto the sidewalk. But um, yeah, Kyle, it was crowded. And I did have sort of concerns about like, oh, we're all pretty close to each other in here. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. Right. KPCC reporter Emily Guerin was at a at, at a outdoor flower market this morning uh, as L.A. County takes some baby steps to reopening. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Emily. Uh, I want to know how that sounds to you. Uh, are you going to be out there this weekend? Uh, Ed, are you going to be uh, going to shop at local businesses? 
businesses. You can shop in curbside sales is is what what businesses are restricted to. Uh, Give us a call, 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. Go to the Airtalk page, kpcc.org. Maybe you're going to go outside, take advantage of some of the newly reopened recreation facilities. Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it because you're not convinced it's safe? I want to hear from you either way. Uh, With with us still uh, from our earlier segment, graciously agreeing to to give us a little bit more of her time is Karen Michaels, the epidemiologist, chair and professor of the Department of Epidemiology at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Uh, Professor Michaels, can we talk through what we just heard from from, uh, our reporter, Emily Guerin, just a minute ago? Is that a reason for concern that in this place where she was, that people were, were at least they were wearing masks, but but may, maybe they weren't able to maintain a, a certain amount of distance? How concerned should we be about that? Yes, I think we should be concerned. Uh, and uh, this is pretty typical for these outdoor markets, that it is much less uh, restricted in terms of, you know, supervision, letting one person in at a time, because you can do that at these outdoor places. So it, it's been an issue with the market. And we should be, on one hand, concerned about that. On the other hand, we need to keep in mind that outdoors is, in principle, better, because, you know, sort of the, it airs out, whereas inside a closed room, you have more accumulation of the virus. Right. So, you know, I, I feel a little bit better in general about outdoors, but the outdoors, whether it's markets or beaches, do tend to crowd. And especially now that people have been inside so much, they just can't wait to go outside and they're so excited. Sometimes you just don't remember that you have to keep apart from people. Yeah, you've got to you've got to do your part in all of this. Let's bring in uh, Lisa Brenner, who's the associate editor of LAist, our the online home for KPCC reporting. She has been tracking all of the various reopening orders that are taking effect this weekend. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for being with us. Hi, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for being with us here. I mean, so what are the new rules in L.A. County here? Uh, who can reopen? Who can't? It'd probably be good to add a little more meat to this conversation about who is going to be cha- what's changing now. Right. We're, we are now in phase two of uh, uh, Governor Newsom's state plan. And his model hinges on like six metrics. And then there are phases on phases. So we are in phase two. And so starting today, florists, toy stores, bookstores, clothing stores, music stores, and sporting goods stores are allowed to open for curbside and car showrooms are allowed to open. Um, it's a heavy lift for those businesses to get that curbside system up and running. There's a, a, a huge beefy PDF of restrictions and beefy. guidance. Beefy. It's beefy. <laughs> Rather large. And are, are they on the, are, are jurisdictions on the same page about this right now? There was some discussion about Long Beach having different rules, Santa Monica having some different rules. Right. Uh, there are additional types of shops in, in Long Beach that appear to be opening, like there are antique stores and jewelry stores are on that list. So I think uh, city by city, there may be some there may be some uh, discrepancy, but uh L.A. City and L.A. County are now aligned. Uh, they have their, their guidance is the same. And how open are we talking about here? Like, uh, you know, since we've we've listed those those different stores, florists, toy stores, music stores, uh, how open is open? Not not very. And uh, people are really excited. But the message 
coming from officials is really not one of wild enthusiasm. It's much more subdued. It's more like these are minor adjustments. Uh, and that's not really the, uh, yeah, they're not, people, they're, it's not, people it's, would really not, like to get not, out to business, yeah, you know, we like are it's, not in a post anything world. <laughs> we're still very much in the, in the thick of it. Well, Lisa Brenner is with us. She's uh, the associate editor of LAist tracking the reopening orders that take effect. Uh, but as we were just saying, they're somewhat limited. We're going to discuss what they look like, what businesses are reopening. And we want to discuss with you, are you ready to get back out there? Are you concerned about whether it's going to be safe? Are you going to sit out this first phase of reopening LA and Orange counties? Give us a call, 866-893-KPCC, the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. Back after a short break on KPCC. Talking about reopening LA County here on AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC. You can also listen to by telling your smart speaker to play KPCC. If you don't have the opportunity to be in your car during this time, we are still with you and streaming at kpcc.org. Just a minute ago, we were talking with Emily Guerin, who was in front of a bunch of flower businesses that are reopening. One of the uh, businesses in L.A. County that are able to reopen now, albeit with some restrictions, only curbside pickup, still some social distancing requirements. Uh, But another caller who is joining us, Candace Kim. Uh, her parents own a flower shop in downtown L.A. Uh, and is calling with some concerns about reopening the the, the shop. Uh, Candace, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What is the what what are the concerns that you had about your parents reopening the shop? Well, the, one of the biggest challenges has been getting the right information about what rules we need to follow, right? There was a ton of confusion after Governor Newsom announced floors can open because uh, people don't fully understand, you know, the mayor has a different uh, voice. We have to follow what the mayor is saying. And so many stores opened immediately as soon as Governor Newsom made that announcement. Um, People weren't really practicing any of the curbside pickup measures or sort of safety measures that are um, being recommended or required. So in general, there's a lot of misinformation. Every day since Governor Newsom made that announcement, I've been calling the mayor's office for guidance. And every day they've said, no, we're not doing what the rest of California is doing until, uh, you know, earlier this week, a couple of days ago, there was the announcement that we were aligning with California. So now I am one of those people with the beefy PDF um, that- <laughs> That was mentioned earlier, right? Um, Does it make sense? (laughs) um, Well, it's a lot of really common sense stuff, right? Like use hand sanitizer, use disinfectant, set up a contactless payment system, right? Where can I go find these things? I just went and paid $60 for two bottles of hand sanitizer so that my parents could try to be a little healthier, right? The biggest concern that I have is what is being allowed is what makes sense, contactless commerce, curbside pickup, but that's not actually happening, right? If you go down to the flower district, the flower district, we're so proud to be a part of, it thrives on foot traffic and in-person commerce. People are not going to pull up in their car and text you and tell you they're there and you run out with the thing that they ordered online. Yeah, they're going to walk into the stall. Yeah, none of the businesses are set up for online commerce. So 
People are already roving around in groups. This is a family tradition. People are driving from all over our region to come look at the flowers. And usually we welcome them with open arms. We're so glad to provide this great family event every year. But right now it's it's yeah. obviously a different a different concern. Uh, Candace, I really appreciate you calling in to share this this concern about uh, about reopening L.A. County and and the the sort of incons- the the having to you know what is the reality on the ground about uh, about this baby step that we've taken toward reopening some limited uh, businesses. I want to turn though uh, with with the limited time that we have left to to Orange County, where there's also some changes taking place this weekend and after a tumultuous week of uh, of strife about what happens to the beaches it it is they are going to be open but in a limited capacity this weekend and I want to bring in Leyland Connolly who is the beaches reporter for the Orange County Register to discuss that hi Leyland thanks for being with us hi thanks for having me okay it was a crazy week talk talk me through how it resolved what are what is going to be open on the beaches and what is not going to be something you can do on beaches in Orange County how much time do you have? <laughs> we have about three minutes, actually. So <laughs> it's all over the. It's it's getting more consistent along the forty two miles of Orange County. Um, pretty much everybody has adopted. Actually, everybody has adopted um, per Newsom's requirements that it's active use, limited uh, limited parking. Uh, actually, you know, all those beach parking lots are still closed. Um, you have to be moving. Um, I really like Seal Beach's motto, Beaches in Motion. You have to be exercising, you can surf, you can paddleboard, you can walk, you can jog. Um, the thing you cannot do at all of these beaches is put up an umbrella and lay out, get a suntan, um, read a book, you know, that lounge thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's also most beaches are completely open, uh, but you still have Seal Beach that will not be open this weekend. And when they do open Monday through Thursday, they'll also have limited daylight hours. And then you have Laguna Beach that is only on weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. So mostly everybody else has the regular operating hours except for those two beaches. What is your sense about whether or not people are going to be able to, whether that this is going to be able to be enforced? Uh, you know, saying, you know, no sunbathing, no sun tanning, but but still allowing access to the beach. Um, you know, there are only, I presume, so many law enforcement that can tell people you can't do this this weekend. And then what are they going to do? Arrest people? Right. Um, I think, you know, hopefully people have gotten the memo and there's a lot of signage. I know there's a lot of education. I don't think there's going to be so much arrest unless, you know, you get really um, combative with one of the peace officers or the lifeguards or the police officers that will be trying to educate people on the sand. Um, that being said, who knows? Uh, we'll kind of see how this weekend plays out. I think this weekend is is the first time we're seeing this in, in action. Um, I know San Clemente had adopted it a few weeks ago when they opened up for a short period of time and other areas such as San Diego and up north in Santa Cruz and in Ventura, uh, they've already do- adopted this. This is sort of seems to be the um, the happy compromise that we're getting at most beaches. So, you know, hopefully people will be compliant and enjoy their the natural resource that we have. Uh, it's limited for now. And, you know, we'll kind of see where it goes and what happens. Right. In- um, but, you know, the whole idea is giving people that resource where they can exercise and keep moving without having those bottlenecks of crowds. 
Do you think that there's in about the 45 seconds that we have left here, uh, Leylan, is is there is there a sense that people are going to go to the beaches as a matter of political protest? I mean, it's talking you talk about this is one of the natural resources we have. Orange County has been sort of a flashpoint for 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 protest against restrictions meant to to curb the spread of COVID-19. Is there a sense of, of that being a motivation for people going out this weekend? I haven't heard of anything. And, you know, we have the big protests in Huntington. They've been having them regularly um, at various beaches. But with this particular plan, I really haven't heard much. And I think because there's so many people who are happy to just have a little bit of a taste of their beaches back, um, I think, you know, there's this happy medium that's hopefully been found. Um, We'll see this weekend, you know, maybe there will be resistance and, uh, you know, a bunch of people laying out with their with their umbrellas and beach towels. But, you know, I I think they'll get a lot of pressure from the people who are actively using it and recreating who want to keep it that way for now. That's about as passive as protest gets. Leyland Connolly, Beaches reporter for the Orange County Register. Thank you for being with us on Air Talk, which is produced by Matt D'Angelantonio, Natalie Chudnovsky, Lindsay Wright, with help from Monica Bushman this week. Our news apprentices are Sabrina Fong and Julia Murray. Our engineer, Parker McDaniels. Senior producer is Fiona Eng. And I am Kyle. Stokes in for Larry Mantle, who will join you in Film Week in just a minute. But I just want to add my personal thanks, as Larry did last week, for all of the support that you showed this show during our Giving Tuesday fundraiser. Won't kid myself. It was fun to watch uh, from up close. I know that it wasn't me that that drove this fundraising. You love Larry Mantle. And I I tell you, it is an honor to sit in his chair and to interact with you, his audience, uh, every so often. Appreciate you. Have a good day. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome. I'm Larry Mantle. This week, I'm joined by critics Christy Lemire, Claudia Puig, and Peter Rayner. We'll hear their reviews of Becoming, the documentary which follows Michelle Obama during her book tour of last year. The documentary Rewind, which premieres Monday night on PBS stations, is a difficult look at a tragic family background from filmmaker Sasha Joseph Newlinger. And we'll also hear about the documentary Spaceship Earth, which looked at the Biosphere 2 social experiment in Arizona. The director of the film, Matt Wolf, is also interviewed on Film Week by The Frame's John Horn. It's all getting started right after NPR News, Film Week on KPCC. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Such a pleasure to have you with us. We're going to be talking about all the new films that are out this weekend, and we'll also get some picks from our critics as to some of the vintage and other series and films that are available to watch on streaming services or video on demand. Our critics this week are the president of the L.A. Film Critics Association, Claudia Puig, Peter Rayner, Christian Science Monitor film critic, and Christy Lemire, film critic for RogerEbert.com and the co-host of the Breakfast All Day podcast. We begin with the documentary Becoming. It's part of a series of 
films being made for Netflix under the Obama's production agreement with the streaming services. Uh, This uh, documentary follows Michelle Obama during her book tour last year. Her book was also called Becoming. Uh, The film is directed by Nadia Hallgren. Claudia, what do you think of the doc? Well, if you love the book, you're going to love the movie. Uh, It's like the book is sort of coming to life. It covers some of the same ground, but Michelle Obama is such a warm, smart, and likable presence, and spending 90 minutes with her is such a wonderful treat. Uh, You feel reassured and inspired, and I found myself watching the film with a big, goofy grin on my face a lot of the time. and that doesn't happen for us critics very often, as you know. Um, there's no huge revelations here. There are some wonderful, fairly intimate and candid moments between Michelle and her brother Craig. She laments how he was her mom's favorite, and he laments uh, you know, what it's like to have your sister be the most popular woman in the world. Um, and there's a nice, short, sweet interlude with her daughter, Malia. Um, and then there's some great comments about when she first met Barack at work and um, spoiler alert, he only makes a brief appearance in this. Uh, he, it's really all about her. And, um, you know, she talks about resisting going out with him when they first worked at the Chicago law firm because people expected it and people were like, well, you know, you're black, he's black, you two love each other, this will be great. And so she has that wry uh, sense of humor that we've seen probably not enough of, you know, during the years that she was uh, first lady. And it's nice to see that in full form. Um, she's also very inspiring. And, um, you know, you see her along this 34 city book tour speaking to groups of young women, um, young people in general, mostly young women, you know, uh, and that's where you really, those, those inspirational moments really come through. But there are also just some really nice little moments that she does speak out fairly candidly a couple times where she uh, you know, talks about her frustrations with the election and how a lot of people of color and women couldn't be bothered to vote and that that really put like a slap in the face. So I feel like, you know, yes, it was a sanctioned documentary, but it was still revelatory enough. And, you know, we, we get, what we really get is a sense that she is one of those rare people that has a gift for making everybody she talks to feel important. She looks genuinely interested when she talks to the people that she signs, whose books she signs, and all of that. Becoming is the documentary on Michelle Obama's book tour. Christy, what do you think? I agree with a lot of that, that Michelle Obama is enormously charismatic and a really gifted storyteller and has a knack for connecting with people, whether it's one-on-one at a book signing or with a giant packed arena full of dazzled fans. Um, yeah, and as Claudia said, she's just really enjoyable company for an hour and a half. It's cool to hang out with her. But the trailer suggests that this is her unplugged. And it's really not because she's so media savvy by this point in her life and in her career. And she's gotten burned for actually speaking her mind as she reflects on in the film. So you always have the sense that she's a bit guarded, you know, and understandably so, you know, she's really smart and really accomplished and she knows she can't be completely candid. I I do appreciate the moments where she talks about the racism that she and her family endured and what it was like to be in the White House during the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I wish we had seen more of that because she's so intelligent and she has so many thoughtful things to say about complicated topics. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's fun. 
you know, we, we hear from her stylist and from her secret service agent detail leader, and they have some funny anecdotes about working with her. So, yeah, if, if you already liked her, you'll come away liking her even more. Becoming the documentary is streaming on Netflix. It's directed by Nadia Hallgren. It's rated PG. The documentary Rewind is directed by Sasha Joseph Newlinger. Uh, and uh, this is available on PBS uh, as well as video on demand. Peter, what do you think of Rewind? Uh, it's a really powerful documentary. Um, it's part of a, I guess, unfortunate uh, genre in a way um, of uh, documentaries uh, about families with a cycle of uh, child abuse. Capturing the Freedmans is, I guess, the most prominent uh, old example. Um, Sasha uh, Joseph Newlinger was um, born in 1989. Um, he uh, was abused as a child. Uh, there's a lot of home movie footage uh, in the film, mostly dating from the late 90s. Um, when he was a young uh, kid, uh, he was a extremely bright student, uh, off the charts, uh, testing, and then uh, suddenly he just sort of withdrew from everything. Uh, this, according to his mother, who's interviewed in the film, and um, so the film is sort of a species of, of uh, suspense or, or a mystery. But I, I, it would be demeaning to to uh, characterize it in that way because it's you know it's it's really not a, uh, a thriller in any in any real sense. It's about the the psychological. A damage that was done to this boy and also also his uh, younger sister um, uh, by uh, those in his family. Um, I, I'm sort of hesitant to say more than that, but you know, in a way, withholding all of that, uh, I think doesn't really do justice to the full story. But I'll leave it at that. But um, it does really uh, capture the the cycle of abuse that that happens within families and within generations of families. Um, and it's 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 quite shocking and revelatory. And and uh, and Sasha, who you know directed the film, is uh, he was extraordinarily brave to come forward in the way that he did in this film. Uh, and and uh, the the film I think represents a sort of healing to the extent that that can be for him. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's really a, a powerful movie that that accelerates in its power as it goes along. We're talking about the documentary Rewind, which will air Monday night on PBS nationally uh, and also available uh, on iTunes on video on demand. Christy, what did you think of Rewind? It is devastating and it's heartbreaking. And no, it's not a thriller, but it is a horror movie because what you experience reliving all these moments with him is just is physically bodily shocking and over and over again there's imagery and conversations that will that will absolutely stun you he is very brave and this film is very effective because he doesn't need to in any way over dramatize what happened to him what happened in his family um he lets the facts play out and he speaks to them in a very matter of fact manner and that makes them that much more powerful um i don't want to give anything away but one of the people involved with this as we see was a very high profile person and so beyond being a study of the horrors of the cycle of of abuse it's also a look at you know the the discrepancies and disparities that occur within our justice system and how unfairly um, some people are treated and how others get off and should not. And so it has a larger 
context in that regard as well. Um, it's, it's very hard to watch, but very important. Rewind is the documentary. Claudia. Um, I echo what everyone else says. You know, we don't talk about filmmaking as a form of healing very often, um, but that's exactly what it adds up to in this very, very powerful and compelling documentary. Um, Sasha Newlinger is, you know, able to face these terrible memories and, and you know, go through this therapeutic process. And I think directing this film was a hugely courageous feat. It also really shines a light on what children have had to endure when they do have the bravery to step up and point out their abusers. They were, you know, he was interviewed by so many different people having to tell the same story over and over again. And one of the things that the film um, shows is that he's also got very, gotten very involved in efforts to help, well, to further, obviously, stop abuse, if, if, but also to help young children who have gone through it and so that they don't have to go through this cycle, uh, you know, after being abused and sort of become re-traumatized when they have to tell their story to so many different people and, and then, you know, be asked in so many different ways. He works with a uh, organization that has children just talking, just telling their story once, and that way it's shown to all these other people. So he's actually, in addition to being a wonderful filmmaker, he is, you know, trying to make things better. So it's all right. Really a wonderful, well worth Rewind again Monday night on PBS stations nationally. It's also available on iTunes, on video on demand. Sasha Joseph Newlinger is the director, and it's unrated. The documentary Spaceship Earth, I don't think we've started with three straight documentaries ever on Film Week before, but uh, this tells the story of Biosphere 2, a self-engineered replica of Earth's ecosystem um, in which people were intended to spend two years living inside the Biosphere 2. Matt Wolf is the director of the film. Christy, what do you think? Well, the timing just couldn't be more perfect for a movie about being stuck indoors for two years straight. Yeah. <laughs> these people are all, these, they chose to do it in the name of science and exploration and, and learning. Um, but we, we follow this group of people who um, designed the biosphere from, from the very beginnings of, of their work as hippies in the 60s doing avant-garde theater and uh, re- really kind of being on the forefront of warning about climate change. And they're interested in different societies and interested in the earth. And they built a ship and they, they were interested in creating their own kind of world. And increasingly, they wanted to make this kind of simulation of what it would be like to live in space, but on earth in the middle of Arizona. And it was a huge media spectacle and, you know, there was a huge launch of all of them in their matching space suits going into the biosphere. Uh, and we so we hear from a lot of these people in their own words. And a lot of it is just, you know, bizarre and, and new agey. And, and the director certainly acknowledges it as such by letting them, you know, tell it in their own words. But he doesn't go deep enough, I don't think. Uh, we hear about kind of the unusual interpersonal connections that they all have with each other, but then we don't explore that deeper. And then eventually there's a backlash to biosphere too, which they also kind of gloss over a little bit. It's the kind of thing that if it happened now, there'd be a giant reality show about it. And Twitter would have the backlash to the backlash within a week or so. (laughs) It would all be sped up. Um, But 
it's it's fascinating and weird, but it doesn't quite go deep enough. Oh, and there's a Steve Bannon connection because, of course, there is. <laughs> Claudia, <laughs> what do you think of Spaceship Earth? <laughs> Very much the same. Um, I felt it didn't quite go deep enough, too. It, it also unspools rather slowly. Um, and maybe that's the point. You know, it, it is the perfect movie to watch while social distancing, because if you think two months is tough, imagine being trapped in one place for two years. Um, but that's kind of what I wish, you know, we, they had gone more into, like emotionally how people felt during those two years. I heard there were other stories, just, a, you know, simple Googling, you'll see that there, were, there was like a cockroach problem that they didn't, you know, further explore. I just feel like there was more there. And there's, there's a lot of disparate parts to this sprawling story. Um, and I think it could have come together better. And- All right. We're talking about Spaceship Earth, the documentary that uh, is streaming on Hulu and on multiple video-on-demand platforms. You can also see it on the Frida Virtual Cinema and Lemley's Virtual Cinema. It's directed by Matt Wolf and Unrated, and Matt Wolf will be interviewed coming up later this hour on Film Week by The Frame's John Horn. Uh, he caught up with him at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. That's coming up later this hour. Spaceship Earth director Matt Wolf with the frames John Horn. Uh, Arkansas is a crime thriller starring Liam Hemsworth, Clark Duke, and Vince Vaughn. Clark Duke is the director and co-screenwriter. Peter, can you start us off? We got uh, just about 40 seconds for a quick uh, start on the film. Uh, Yeah, this is a kind of Tarantino-esque, Coen Brothers-esque uh, with a little bit of Elmore Leonard, Jim Thompson thrown in. But somehow it does sort of have a distinctive tang. Uh, these two drug dealers, uh, played by uh, Liam uh, Hensworth and Clark Duke, uh, low-level drug dealers, get involved in all sorts of nefarious uh, low-level stuff, uh, working for a, a guy named Frog, who they never meet, who's played by um, Vince Vaughn. Uh, terrific uh, supporting performances by Michael K. Williams, Vivica Fox. Uh, Eden Brolin. Um, it doesn't quite up, uh, add up to a full uh, meal, uh, even though it's overlong. Um, but it okay. does a kind of rambling, affectionate uh, weirdness to it. We'll continue here. What our other two critics say about Arkansas from director and writer Clark Duke. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Larry Mantle. Hoping you're having a terrific day. We're telling you about what uh, films you can see in your own home. A little bit later, we'll have some of our critics' picks for uh, films that aren't necessarily new. We're talking, though, about uh, the crime thriller Arkansas, starring Liam Hemsworth and Clark Duke. Uh, Peter was telling us first about it. Christy, briefly, what do you think? You know, it's quirky and lively and diverting for a little while, but then it really just drags and it has all these different subplots and takes all these detours and then eventually the the threads all line up and it's not nearly as profound as I think Clark Duke thinks it is. I feel like Clark Duke, the director, is in love with Clark Duke, the actor and co-writer too much. This thing is all of two hours long and you know, yeah, you've got Malkovich and Vince Vaughn vamping, and that's a little bit of fun, but it's never quite as, as good as the promise was off the top. Arkansas, Claudia. Yeah, I think this was an ambitious directorial debut by Clark Duke, and um, he does show some promise as a filmmaker, and maybe even more so as a screenwriter. Um, but it goes on too long. It's unevenly paced. It seems to end a few times. 
it has a somewhat clever structure, you know, and, and certainly it has a good cast. Malkovich is great. But it's really more about character quirks than plot. So if you don't mind something that is sprawling and only sporadically fun, then maybe it's the movie for you. Arkansas's rated R on multiple video-on-demand platforms. Natalie Wood, what remains behind an HBO documentary that's on the premium service now? Uh, and uh, the film uh, was uh, uh, directed by Natalie Wood's daughter, as I understand, Claudia. Is that right? Well, no, she didn't direct it. She produced it? She produced it. Okay. serves as kind of the narrator um, and the heart and soul of it. And so it was solid and, and intermittently intriguing, but I think ultimately kind of disappointing since it, leaves, it left a lot of stones unturned. And, and uh, from the angle of being heartfelt and personal, uh, it satisfied, you, you know, as told, you get the sense of what it must have been like, uh, you know, how horrible what her children endured uh, was, and certainly the fact that she was gone far too soon, um, and how shattered her kids were. And that comes through very loud and clear and very movingly as kind of a love letter. But, of course, there's the elephant in the room of her death and, you know, the whole Hollywood mystery of that. Um, and it leaves us wanting to know more. It doesn't really clarify much. In fact, it kind of, not only does it not shed light on the case, but it kind of raises more questions. And it seems like a real effort to exonerate Robert Wagner, who's now 90, and he's interviewed along with the daughters. They refer to him as Daddy Wagner. Um, and he does, you know, admit that he, he talks about the night on the boat. He talks about having been drunk. He talks about a fight that he got into with Christopher Walken. But it only goes so far. And I think it sort of shows the controversies in a much, in kind of a very limited light. So, We're talking about Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, the HBO documentary, Peter. Uh, it's an interesting film, you know, because it is a sort of, uh, you know, personal memoir by her daughter. Um, and so there are a lot of insights into what she, uh, Natalie Wood was like as a mother uh, and all of her various, uh, you know, cohorts and the men in her life. And, and you know, there's a lot of, of home movie clips and things. And, and Natalie Wood herself uh, is, is on the audio track. Uh, talking about her life. So all of that is fascinating. But it is true, as Claudia says, that, you know, the uh, the mystery of her death is, is, is overshadows everything else in the film. And, and it's it's obvious that the daughter doesn't want to, you know, get get too tabloidy. Um, and, uh, and, and there are some emotional scenes where, you know, Robert Wagner pretty much breaks down in talking about it. Um, but it just seems sort of bifurcated between all of that stuff uh, you know, the Catalina death and the rest of her life. Um, it's not really uh, an examination of her career as an actress, per se. There are clips from all of her famous films, but, but that's really not what the movie's about. So it's it's very much a kind of authorized film by the daughter, but it's touching in that way. And I have to say, is uh, you know, I've interviewed Ra, Ra, uh, Ra, uh, Wagner, talked with him about... Um, the incident, and he'll only go so far. I mean, it's very, very clear that um, he will not go beyond that. We're talking about Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, the documentary directed by Laurent Buzero on HBO. Uh, now you can check your local listings. It's unrated. The drama Driveways uh, features one of the last performances by Brian Dennehy, who passed away uh, just over a week ago. The film's directed by Andrew Ahn. Christy? 
This is such a lovely and delicate and quietly moving film. Uh, I'm so glad that it's, it's coming out and I hope folks seek it out on, on streaming. Andrew Ahn directed Spa Night a few years back, which was set in Koreatown. And he has this real knack for sense of place and, and for character. And this is about a mom, a single mom played by Hong Chow. She and her boy, who's about 10 years old, drive to a small town in upstate New York after the death of her sister to clean out her house. And they strike up an unlikely friendship with the war veteran who lived next door, played by Brian Dennehy. He's sitting out on his porch, and at first he's a little suspicious of them. Who are they? What are they doing there? But he and this kid, played by Lucas J., who is just great, who is not precocious in the slightest. He's really quite affecting. Um, they have this really unusual and unlikely friendship that strikes up. And on paper, this sounds so mawkish and so feel good. And it's not. The emotions are so genuine and authentic and the interactions feel natural the way that these two get to know each other. And, and then the Hong Chao character is complicated and flawed in interesting ways. There's a rich sense of place. They explore a kind of subtle racism that exists when this Asian family moves in and who are they? And and uh, it's just, it's really lovely and much needed, like a, a warm hug. And Brian Dennehy, ugh, it just breaks your heart all over again. He's so great in this. Driveways is the film. Andrew on the director, Hannah Bose and Paul Therene are the screenwriters. It's unrated, available on Amazon Prime Video and on Google Play. Walk Away Joe, an action film starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan and David Strathairn. Uh, the film's directed by Tom Wright and written by Michael uh, Melillo. Christy, what did you think of Walk Away Joe? So Walk Away Joe shares its title with a Trisha Yearwood song from 1992. And that song accomplishes more in those four minutes in terms of creating a vivid sense of place and character and motivation than this movie does over the entirety of its 89-minute-long running time or whatever it is. It is full of cliches about fathers and sons and abandonment and pent-up resentment, and there are all these coincidences that tie these characters together. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is this hustler, pool shark, and... His son, played by Julian Fetter, is 14, and he's like his, his little sidekick who helps him scam chumps out of their cash at the pool halls in southern Louisiana. But then the dad bails, the kid goes to look for him, ends up befriending David Strathairn, who also has abandoned his family. He is the titular walkaway Joe, and it's how everyone achieves a sense of I don't know, forgiveness, uh, catharsis, I didn't believe a minute of it. It's coincidental <laughs> and uh, does not work. Walk Away Joe's Unrated. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Fandango Now, and Vudu. Intrigo, Dear Agnes, uh, a European production, co-production, directed by Daniel Alfredson, who co-wrote the film as well, and it stars Gemma Chan. Uh, Claudia, what do you think of Intrigo, Dear Agnes? Well, fans of involving, taut, and clever murder mysteries should definitely steer clear of this one because it's none of the above. Um, it, this is the story of an unhappy wife, played by Gemma Chan, um, who uh, was in Crazy Rich Asians and, and was quite good at that. Um, 
she comes up with a murder scheme, and she turns to an old friend that she hasn't talked to in decades to carry out this murder of her husband. And we're not giving anything away because that's established early on. And it's never established why she chooses this old friend. Um, but ostensibly it's because neither she nor the old friend seem to know any other people. Um, it's it's a very dull movie for something that's a mystery thriller. It's clumsily structured. It's narratively muddled. It's not particularly well acted. It's even set in these beautiful European locations that don't seem to showcase their beauty in any way. This is this is a big miss. It's too bad because it's directed by Daniel Alfredson, who made The Girl Who Played With Fire, um, which was with Numi Rapace and Michael Nyquist, and some of those are such, you know, there's, they can be such great films, but this is not. And this, I understand, is the, the third film in a trilogy? Yes, there was another one with Ben Kingsley called Intrigo, Dear Author, which was just as bad. Um, yeah, I don't know why these miss, because, uh, you know, mystery crime thrillers are, can, you know, when they're done well, can be fantastic, but this is just second rate. Intrigo, Dear Agnes is rated R, available on multiple video-on-demand platforms. Valley Girl, a romantic musical comedy starring Jessica Roth and Josh Whitehouse, Rachel Lee Goldenberg, the director, Amy Talkington, is the writer, Christy. This movie hurts my heart and not in a good way. Um, I am a Valley Girl. I grew up in Woodland Hills in the 80s. I love the original Valley Girl. This is a musical version of Valley Girl. And it feels very cringy and small and tinny. And it's got this whole flashback structure where Alicia Silverstone is Julie talking to her own daughter, played by Camilla Marone. And they flash back to the whole Randy and Julie, Romeo and Juliet, um, you know, forbidden love across the hills and and it's got a similar structure to Valley Girl, then they burst into song. One thing I have to complain about, and I realize this is very nitpicky, the songs are quite anachronistic. It takes place very specifically in June of 1983 because they reference Sally Ride going into space. But they have songs. They have Madonna Material Girl, which is 1984. They have Take On Me by Aha, which is 1985. And if they want to evoke this very specific place and time, you got to get that stuff right. It's okay. When, when Jessica Roth and Josh Whitehouse aren't singing, they actually have kind of a nice chemistry with each other. Jessica Roth was very good in the Happy Death Day movies. But um, this just made me cringe a lot. Valley Girl, the musical, rated PG-13, available on Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, and iTunes. The French comedy On a Magical Night, written and directed by uh, Christophe Honoré. Peter, what'd you think? Yeah, yeah the very French. Uh, <laughs> it's a French sex farce. Uh, it's pretty much uh, earthbound, however. Uh, Chiara Mastriani, who's uh, the daughter of uh, Catherine Deneuve and Marcello Mastriani, um, is a history professor who has an affair with a 20-something student. Her husband, uh, Richard, uh, well played by Benjamin Biolay, uh, finds out about this uh, when she comes home uh, from her uh, text messages that she leaves on her cell phone. And so they have one of these, you can't throw me out, I'm leaving, kind of fights, and she takes a room across the street from their uh, apartment in the, the hotel uh, looking across the way. And um, in the, the hotel room, she finds waiting for her a 25-year-old version of her husband. 
uh, played by Vincent Lacoste. And uh, ultimately, uh, also piling into the room are all the men that she's had affairs with, uh, her mother, her, her grandmother. You know, it gets pretty crowded in there. Um, it's uh, it, it's not terribly, uh, it's very French, as I say. Even a character, you know, playing Charles Aznavour shows up. It reminded me of those circus acts where, you know, how many clowns can you pile into a <laughs> bug? Um, there's also the uh, piano teacher that the husband had a crush on, played by Camille Cotin. It's a very French line where at one point she says, all boys dream of having a piano teacher. Um, you know, I wish this film was a little lighter and light-fingered and, and, and had more, you know, lyricism to it. But it, it, it it's pretty uh, stage-bound, and it, it doesn't really add up to a lot, even though there are a lot of attractive people in it. On a magical night, French comedy is unrated. You can see it at the Frida Virtual Cinema site and Lemley's Virtual Cinema site. Uh, Peter, uh, let's quickly talk about three family films that you're recommending for people to go back and look at. They're available on multiple streaming platforms platforms, beginning with 1956's The Red Balloon, which I remember them showing to us as kids in school. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, came out in 1956, and it's it's a great classic. It's one of the films, I think, that, that really has turned a lot of uh, kids into movie lovers, you know, along with E.T. and, and, and others like that. It's Albert Lamaurice uh, made it. Uh, he, his, his son is, is the little boy in it who is befriended by uh, magically by a, a red balloon that follows him everywhere, and um, it it really is uh, just you know a, a transcendently beautiful movie. It's it's kind of a perfect movie. I don't really know that there's anything uh, yeah. possibly say against. Yeah, what could you say against the red balloon from 1979, The Black Stallion? Yeah, this is uh, I think equally great. Carol Ballard's uh, incredible. Uh, a rendition of the Walter Farley novel. Uh, Kelly Reno is ship- shipwrecked on a desert island, and Mickey Rooney gives the best performance of his career in this. It's, it's just a magical movie. And A Little Princess from Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, one of the, the great family films, Cuaron's Hollywood debut. Um, well, it was just very powerful from 1995. Peter, thank you so much. Claudia and Christy, we have uh, more to come. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Larry Mantle with critics Christy Lemire, Claudia Puig, and Peter Rayner. Coming up in just a few minutes, John Horn interviews Matt Wolf, the director of Spaceship Earth, a documentary that was reviewed earlier this hour by our critics. I, I want to mention a film that's not uh, widely streaming in its availability, but if you are a fan of either uh, abalone or sea urchin, uni, uh, a must-see is The Delicacy. It's from director Jason Wise, who also did a very entertaining documentary about sommeliers, I guess it was about nine years ago or so, called Psalm. And he actually has a subscription 
site which has documentaries related to sommelier and other food topics. It's Psalm TV. The delicacy is streaming on his site. There's a free seven-day trial in which you can see the delicacy, and it's all takes you off of Santa Barbara where you see many of these folks, only one woman who's profiled. Uh, she She's the lone woman doing this very dangerous uh, work, diving to come up with sea urchins off uh, Santa Barbara. But it's great look back at the history of, of California and abalone uh, gathering and sea urchin. It takes you into some of the finest restaurants in Southern California, uh, the whole culture of that. Jason Wise's film, The Delicacy, and again, uh, Psalm TV uh, has a, a seven-day trial where you can you could see it free or, of course, subscribe. We continue with our Film Week critics talking about some of their favorite picks and Peter talking about A Little Princess, 1995, Alfonso Cuaron film, The Black Stallion, The Red Balloon. Uh, Claudia, let's talk about some of your favorites, beginning with Netflix uh, Netflix series The Keepers, which came out uh, a couple of years ago. It's a documentary series? Yes. You know, now that I don't have to run around and go out to screenings, um, I've, I'm catching up to some shows that I meant to watch. Um, and one of them is The Keepers, which is fascinating, since we've been talking about some great documentaries today. This is a seven-part documentary series, and it's from a few years ago, and it kind of kicked off the true crime fascination that many of us have in documentaries and podcasts, and it brilliantly composes these strands of a very complicated mystery and exposes buried secrets in this suburb outside of Baltimore and that the Catholic Church is part in it. It's about the, uh, a, a nun that was murdered, who is much loved, a teacher at a local high school, and these two very determined women in their mid-60s who piece together the threads in this brutal murder. And then uh, they're like amateur sleuths, and they kind of anchor the documentary series. And then along the way, there's a, couple, there's a few other very courageous women who come forward to reveal what's happened to them. And it's very complicated and fascinating, and it's really binge-worthy. All right. You also want to recommend on Netflix, and this um, was on cable before it, it jumped to streaming, uh, uh, S-C-H-I-T apostrophe S Creek, Schitt's Creek, um, much like the Christopher Guest kinds of uh, films, uh, Eugene uh, Levy and Catherine O'Hara um, in this, uh, and Dan Levy, the son of Eugene uh, Levy in the film as well. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, briefly describe it, Claudia. Well, so it's about this family. I'm so glad you you spelled it because I really wanted to avoid pronouncing it and getting in trouble with the seven words you can't say. Um, anyway, it's about this family who's extremely wealthy and just extremely garish and obnoxious, and they lose all their money, I think, from bad investments. And so they end up in this little town that the father, who's played by Eugene Levy, had bought for his son, who's played by his real-life son, Dan Levy, um, as a joke. And it's called the name of the show. And so they end up in this little godforsaken town, which is actually kind of charming in some weird way. But um, so it's, you know, the clash. It's like the Beverly Hillbillies, only maybe reversed. Um, you know, these are these very sort of nouveau riche, obnoxious people who come to this little town. And then uh, Chris Elliott plays the mayor of the town in a role that he seems he was born to play. And, you know, it's a really it's fun and light and escapist. And, and when we've been watching some heavy stuff, I kind of turn to it. Yeah. Uh, Schitt's Creek is on Netflix. Also, Claudia, I know you wanted to mention that Alamo Draft House, like some of the other art house 
Theaters is launching its own virtual cinema uh, VOD platform. They've got Parasite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, even Rock and Roll High School available. Yes, that's right. And um, actually, and Spaceship Earth is is going to be um, part of a, a similar kind of thing through Vidiots, which I'm on the board of, actually. Um, so Alamo Draft House and Vidiots have worked together, too. So, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, the more platforms we're seeing, the better, because who knows when theaters are going to be opening back up. All right, very good. Christy, let's get some of your picks uh, for films that maybe people didn't have a chance to uh, catch up with before. Uh, what are some of your favorites you want to uh, send people toward? Well, I'm loving, as Claudia mentioned, all the great stuff that Alamo Drafthouse has on, on their VOD. It's a really deep bench. They also have RBG there as well. We'd all send good vibes to Ruth Bader Ginsburg these days. But um, I'm watching a lot of series, as we all have time now, and we are in the middle of a couple that are really great, one of which is Mrs. America on Hulu, which we are about six episodes into right now. And it is about the Equal Rights Amendment and Kate Blanchett stars as Phyllis Schlafly and she is exquisite and terrifying. And uh, it's a really delicate performance for a woman who was also larger than life. Incredible cast, Margot Martindale, Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem, Uzo Adubo as Shirley Chisholm. And um, it's, it shows both sides of that debate. I'm also loving The Last Dance on ESPN. This is the Michael Jordan documentary, the 10 part series that got moved up and premiered earlier to entertain all of us while we were all stuck at home. Um, episodes seven and eight air this weekend, but they're all available on ESPN. And maybe you think 10 hours of Michael Jordan sounds excessive. Maybe you don't think you care about Michael Jordan, but it is really deeply sourced and edited in a beautiful, thrilling way, and uh, I'm very much hooked on that. So Tim, a lot of good. I was going to say, Tim Gogshell uh, was talking about this last week too, and and I just found out it's not done yet. They're still finishing up those final two episodes because they right. moved it up, like you said. Right, he like the director Jason Hare, who is really, really good. Like, just finished cutting episode nine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, but it's all out there. You can catch up in the beginning, and you do end up re appreciating Jordan, you know, and 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 great interviews with like Larry Bird and Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson. It's um, it's very, very good. Even if, if you don't love basketball, you'll enjoy it. But if you do love basketball, it's even better. All right, yeah. If there wasn't enough pressure on uh, documentary filmmakers, uh, and um, just um. Wanted to mention uh, some uh, just sort of fun movies for people to see streaming. Uh, one of them, even though it's not Christmas time, Elf from 2003. Elf is a movie that just puts a smile on your face. You know, there are some movies like Sing Street that do that for you. They're just pure joy in film form. And Will Ferrell just being a goofball in an elf costume is a perennial favorite. It doesn't have to be Christmas, but the one, a, a big, goofy, joyous escape elf is it. All right. Also in that sort of escapist fun, legally blonde Reese Witherspoon from 2001, uh, oceans, uh, 11, not, not the Sinatra version, but the rebooting of that and singing in the rain considered by many to be the greatest musical ever made from 1952. I want to thank our terrific film week critics. That's Christy Lemire, Peter Rayner, Claudia Puig, all joining us 
Uh, And stay tuned coming up next. It's going to be our feature portion of Film Week as John Horn is going to talk with the director of the documentary Spaceship Earth, available this week. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Larry Mantel. So good to have you with us. Earlier, our Film Week critics reviewed the new documentary Spaceship Earth. It premiered earlier this year at the Sundance Festival and is out this week in virtual cinemas and on VOD. It's about the Biosphere 2 mission in 1991. Eight researchers quarantined themselves in a massive glass and metal facility in Oracle, Arizona. The project was two years long. The goal to create a living ecosystem inside the biosphere to show that human life could be sustained in outer space. In the film, director Matt Wolf examines the biospherians who carried out the mission. What ultimately happened, the good and bad ways, it became a cultural phenomenon. When the Framos John Horn talked with Wolf this week, he started by asking him if the mission was called Biosphere 2, Whatever happened to Biosphere 1? Biosphere 1 is planet Earth. So there was not a failed Biosphere 1. Biosphere 2 was the first installment of an experiment. A nice, simple definition that I like of a biosphere is a virtually closed system with plants and animals and the atmospheres all inside. If we're going to build the first human-designed biospheric system, we're going to make it beautiful. We're going to put in mini rainforest, a desert, the savanna, be an ocean with a living coral reef. It would be populated by hundreds of carefully selected plants and animal species, including eight people. Well, certainly the world has changed since you made this film and premiered it at the Sundance Film Festival in January. How do you think what they went through as biospherians is relevant to what we're going through today? They were quarantined for two years. I hope our quarantine is a little bit shorter. But what are the lessons that you think ordinary people might take away from how they did it and what they learned from the process? I mean, one thing I really took from the biospherian Mark Nelson in particular is this idea of personal transformation through being in a miniature world. Um, Inside Biosphere 2, the biospherians saw the consequences of their actions. They could literally measure them, and they were responsible for creating the atmosphere they breathed and the food that they needed to um, subsist. And so when they came out into this bigger world, I don't think they could take for granted anything, not even a breath. They came from theater. I mean, theater was a huge part of what brought them together, and they were interested in storytelling, but they were also way ahead of the curve in terms of climate change and what was happening to the planet, and they weren't, you know, kind of naive about the changes that were happening. So how did art and research about climate change coalesce into this idea for Biosphere 2? I mean, there's kind of two things going on with Biosphere 2. It is truly a theatrical spectacle that was put on the world stage in the mass media. The futuristic-looking steel and glass structure is touted as an environmental laboratory and prototype for colonies in space. They'll spend two years in their prefab paradise trying to support themselves so that the rest of us can learn what it would be like if we had to move into a portable world 
on another planet. Its designers say it's science, its detractors say it's a tourist attraction run by questionable characters. But there's an earnest and, and kind of rigorous intention behind the whole thing to create a real laboratory for planet Earth and to put all this stuff together, these essential attributes of the biomes of the world and to see how they interact, to measure their spheric dynamics and to see if people can effectively subsist in a closed system. So there were a couple layers, sometimes in competition with each other with the project, but in some senses, I think its ultimate success is providing um, a, a vivid and, and kind of entertaining demonstration of what sustainable living could look like. This is also a group of people who documented a lot of what happened. When you first found the archives, what was in it and what did it give you as a filmmaker? I mean, when I went to Synergia Ranch, the, the commune that the Synergist built in the 60s, I was escorted with my producer, Stacey Reese, into this temperature-controlled room that had hundreds of 16 millimeter film canisters and analog videotapes and thousands of images. And I was just astounded. The idea that this group recognized that what they were doing was historic and that they had the foresight to document it, let alone not just document, but to do it well, often from multiple angles, even with cranes. And for it just to be sitting there untapped, I mean, it's an extraordinary opportunity, but also a big responsibility. And I was so fortunate that they allowed me to use that material. So much of what happens during your film is how the media is trying to characterize what is going on. And not only are they not quite getting it, they're kind of sensationalizing it. And then they're probably blowing out of proportion things that they think are scandals. When you look back as to what happened versus how the media covered what happened, what do you notice are the biggest discrepancies? And did that really change the way that the biosphere was remembered. There was a lack of transparency with the media, and that certainly created skepticism that stoked a, a kind of takedown. And with the takedown came a kind of sensationalism as well that really focused on describing this group as a cult, which I don't perceive the group as a cult at all. I think they're idiosyncratic and to an outsider appear wacky. But um, there was a cult of personality around their leader, John Allen, which is different than, than the entire thing being discounted as a cult. You know, this was before reality TV. It was right on the precipice of it. I read a New York Times headline when MTV's Real World came out. It said it's MTV's answer to Biosphere 2. And there's also a, a rumor that circulated that John DeMole, the creator of Big Brother, got his idea from watching satellite uplinks from Biosphere 2. But then, of course, with their own ecological calamities, one can't help but think of um, both Big Brother, but also Survivor. So in so many senses, Biosphere 2 fed into the public's burgeoning appetite for a kind of voyeuristic entertainment and this kind of soap opera of a human experiment. And that was there. But my sense from the Biospherians is they were busy. They had a lot of work to do to keep their world going. And as much as they had interpersonal conflict and disagreements about the management of the project, that it wasn't a, a kind of Lord of the Flies situation inside. A lot of the people who were in the biosphere were essentially kind of self-taught. They weren't necessarily experts in any given field, but they had some sort of knowledge. And what I took away from it, too, was that you can have people who have a common goal, which is surviving this experiment, but they have diverse skills and how they figured out how to work as a community also felt like it was very instructive. Yeah, I mean, that was my biggest takeaway from the film is this unique model of small groups. And small groups, as the biospherian Mark Nelson said, can be engines of change. I think it's a real viable model for us to realize unprecedented ideas and projects because 
when people come together with diverse skills, as you said, and put their minds towards a common goal, a lot is possible that might seem otherwise inaccessible. And I think it's meaningful that the ethos of this group was to learn by doing. Um, they weren't coming from academic environments with the exception of one of the biospherians. And even he had a kind of eccentric life point of view and, and field of interest. But I think it's really um, inspiring to think that, okay, what are the skill sets to build a new world? I mean, they're hard to define. How could someone be trained to do that? Uh, one of the, the synergists, as they were called, Kathleen Gray said, Biosphere 2 is a voyage into the unknown. So I think if anything, the, the requirements for doing that is to be an adventurer and to engage in an experiment that hasn't been done before. And I think that's the task at hand with us now as we re-enter re this new world. And that um, I'll be curious to see how we learn by doing. I'm gonna ask you this last question. When the when the Biospherians came out of the Biosphere, what, in 1993, is that right? Mm -hmm. Do you think they imagined that what they were doing would have any relevance to the modern world? Or did they really know that they were pioneers at the time? I think they did recognize that they were pioneers and that the whole world was watching. There were millions of eyeballs on this experiment. And even though it was in some senses rebuked during the mission, there were still tons of people at their reentry ceremony with Jane Goodall making a celebratory speech. They had people's attentions and they really seized that moment. So I don't think it comes as a surprise that people are now appreciating the project, but I think it's a great relief to them that during their lifetime that people are paying paying attention to what they tried to do and recognizing it as a noble cause, even if it's been somewhat discounted in the popular memory of our culture. Matt, thanks so much. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Thank you. That's director Matt Wolf talking with The Frame's John Horn about Wolf's new documentary, Spaceship Earth. You can see it right now at Lemley's Virtual Cinema, the Frida Virtual Cinema, as well as on various on-demand platforms. For all of us at Film Week, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. 